Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. I'm your co-host today, Brendan Connolly, a first-year medical student at Loyola Stritch School of Medicine. And I'm your other co-host, Emily Hagen, also a first-year student at Loyola. We're starting a new mini-series within the Medicus podcast focused on the theme of medical myths. These episodes explore misinformation and common misunderstandings in the healthcare world with the goal to help dispel common myths and promote education and awareness. Today's medical myths episode focuses on women's health, specifically women's pleasure and pain. Our guest is Jen Romanello, actually a close friend of mine. We thought Jen was the perfect person to interview about this topic, given her passion for and previous work in women's health. Jen is a medical student at Rush Medical College in Chicago. She keeps an active blog called Bioethics and Identity. She founded her college's chapter of The Triple Helix, an undergraduate forum for writing and discussion in bioethics. And she recently organized a panel as a Planned Parenthood volunteer ambassador with physicians and health educators. She has also done research at a global fertility clinic where she served on the practices ethics committee. Jen, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Great, we're really excited to have you here too. So first off, we always like to get a bit of background on our interviewees for our listeners. We know you're currently a first year medical student at Rush. Can you tell us about your interest within medicine? Yes, absolutely. So my interests in medicine really tie in with my interest in bioethics uh, and women's health. So like you said, I'm a first year med student. I don't need to know for a few years what I want to go into, but I feel very certain that I want to be serving women and serving the field of women's health. Um, And I also know that I want to be an advocate for patients. So I really want to promote patients' health and well-being, of course, in the clinic, in the hospital, but also in a way that it changes how people understand certain topics in women's health. Like this podcast today, we're, we're debunking myths. And I'm interested not in what's just going to prolong someone's life, but what's going to give someone a greater quality of their life. And I think with talking about women's pain and pleasure today, that absolutely ties in with well-being. And some people might say, well, no one's dying if someone has sexual dysfunction, for example, so it's not as important. And like, yes, it's not life or death, but it absolutely has to do with things that impact people's quality of life, like how people see themselves, their identity, their intimacy, their quality of their relationships. Great. That's all very interesting. Um, So you created a panel in your gap year. We have the title here. It's I Like It, A Conversation on Female Pleasure and Sexual Communication. This was about raising the consciousness of how women can more readily identify and communicate what's pleasurable for them. So what was your inspiration for creating this and what did that process look like? So I um, was watching a series on Netflix called Explained. Uh, I know Emily's heard of it. Have you heard? Of it. She's told me about it. Okay, uh, but like through. It, yeah, this? just just from uh, setting this podcast up, really. Okay, where so I heard of it. Yeah, they have twenty minute episodes on all these different random topics, and one episode is on the female orgasm. So it was two summers ago. I listened uh, or watched this episode, 
And there were things that I was really shocked to hear that I didn't know. So I had already graduated from college with my degree in biology. I'd been interested in women's health for a while. I went to all my health classes in high school at a progressive school in New York City, but I didn't know things like that, the anatomy of the clitoris. I thought it was just the part that is um, visible above the skin, but it's actually four inches in length. And if I Mm. didn't know this, there were other people who didn't know this. And I also wanted to realize why didn't we know this? And then what are the implications for medicine and women's, uh, women's health? And so... Another thing uh, that came up that surprised me was that there's such thing as the orgasm gap. And what it is, is that women who um, have sexual partners who are women, they're more likely to orgasm. It's uh, according to the uh, video, it's 86% than women who have sexual partners who are men, where it's 65%. So I also thought to myself, why is this happening? And what's the history to this? And I I really wanted to understand it, and I wanted to to do something about it. And um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a big inspiration to me, and um, she says anger is self-defeating. So my, my reaction was definitely frustration that I didn't know about this, and a lot of people didn't know about this. And so instead, I decided to do something really generative with those emotions and create an educational space for this. So the panel... Um, was at uh, my university so i was already uh, out of college but um, we watched the 20 minute episode and then we had um, panelists who were physicians and health educators in washington dc and we really made it an experience so you could have food there we had a raffle i love the company i heart guts they have all different um paraphernalia for different body parts um they could be pillows or pins so we gave out um, a vulva pillow and a clitoris pin so we were just setting the standard that this would be a comfortable environment to talk about this yeah i mean it definitely sounds like it was a really comfortable environment that allowed for these discussions that needed to be had so can you tell us about how specifically you went about organizing the panel such as how you found the clinicians and educators that participated on the panel? How'd you advertise for the panel? I mean, I'm sure it took a lot of work. So can you just walk us through a bit about that? Sure. So I was conveniently um, already a part of the Planned Parenthood Metropolitan Washington Ambassador Program, which is volunteering program for outreach in Washington, D.C. So we would table at different health events like health fairs, or we could even create our own Mm -hmm. events. So I was in the perfect space. So I actually became a volunteer Planned Parenthood just by walking into one of their locations in Washington, D.C. And I went up to the front desk and asked, how can I become involved and what opportunities are there to contribute? And so if anyone out there has anything in their life that they're um, considering asking for, I definitely uh, recommend going for it. And um, literally right after I watched the video, I reached out to my supervisor there and I said, I have this idea and I want to get people talking. And she was so helpful in working with me and connected me with another volunteer who had done a similar event actually about um, a year before. And she connected me with one of the doctors and two of the health educators. And then one of the doctors connected me with um, the other one. And um, interestingly to note, one of the doctors actually has a fellowship in sexual medicine. And she told me that there's only one current program in the country and then one, with, one program that she does, uh, the sexual fellowship, 
one that exists it's, in the United okay, States. Okay, so she's part of the only one in the U.S. Yes, I was oh, shocked wow. to hear okay. that. And yeah. that's huge. she said there are a very limited number of spots each year, too. Yeah. So it was great that you found her because if there's only one fellowship, how many graduates have there been so far from this fellowship? Right. Yeah. And um, she has a background as a urologist, and she said that um, I think you have to be a urologist to also be a part of it. Oh, oh wow. Huh. So it's quite a small cohort of doctors we're talking about then. Yes, but um, hopefully there'll be more in yes. our future. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. yes, definitely talk about that more later as well. Yeah, so clearly a lot of the things you were probably trying to combat with your panel was misinformation, stigmas, the fact that a lot of this, like this conversation we're having now could be seen as taboo by a lot of people um, just to be talking about women's health or women's sexual health. I'm interested in why, if you have any insights, why those stigmas exist, why they developed, and then also why they might persist today. Yeah, that definitely could have its own podcast, like not even right. episode, like its whole <laughs> series. Um, I can definitely speak to a history within medicine. So actually the word hysteria is where we get the word hysterectomy from, for example. So hysteria That's so interesting. Yeah, it comes from, um, I think it's the Greek word for uterus. And so female hysteria was once a common medical diagnosis for women. And it could be a whole array of symptoms that the women were having. It could be anything from anxiety, shortness of breath, nervousness, fainting. And interestingly enough, a lot of sexual desire, like sexually forward behavior, or a loss of interest in sex, or even the tendency to cause too much trouble for others. So if you're having, if you're a patient and you're diagnosed with hysteria, not only is it socially unacceptable to have too much sexual desire, but it's actually a pathology. It's a disease and it's mm. something that needs to be fixed or treated. And actually only as recent as 1952, did the American Psychiatric Association drop the term hysteria, um, and it was removed from the DSM only in 1980. So this seems wow. like something so archaic, you know, but it's so recent that the history lingers. Right. Yeah. Right. So you think the fact that there are still stigmas today, still um, various misunderstandings today, some of that has to do with lingering effects of labeling any female behavior that was maybe out of the ordinary as hysteria, as something um, unique and odd about females. Is that maybe your perception? Yeah, just there's a context. Like we're not living yeah. today in a bubble. But also it's important to acknowledge that different countries will have their own history of stigma or different communities, mm. different mm. Um, religions, even different families. So it based on their conversations and understanding specifically... Yeah, or if it can come from, from the movies uh, that we see. Right. or um, yeah. Media influence, for sure. Yeah, or what we learn in, in health class. Mm. And uh, I know like, later we're going to talk about language and just how language influences thought and what right. words we use. Yeah. Yeah, so many factors really go into the development and persistence of these stigmas, which I think just highlights the importance of better understanding them. Going back to your panel really quick, um, yes. who were some of the the healthcare providers and other people that you got to join that panel? Yes. So the two health educators, Reba Thomas and Rebecca Hassel, they um, have their own practices in Washington, D.C. And then the physicians uh, were Dr. Rubin. She um, has her own practice in D.C. And um, she's the one with the uh, fellowship in sexual okay. medicine. And yeah. then um, we also have Dr. Mojoros, and she um, 
is a physician who though has focused a lot on sex therapy for patients mm. and she has mm. her own practice in in the dc area oh okay so is her practice more perhaps like psychotherapy relationship guiding rather than providing medical care or is it some combination of those things it'll be um when she's with patients she'll be having conversations with them it's not like they're on the exam table okay. the same as with dr rubin i haven't shadowed dr mojeros but i've spent time with shadowing dr rubin oh great oh nice great i'm sure that gave you even more insight into this topic and the idea she shared on the panel yeah i learned so much from her i texted her last night that i'm going on the podcast she was very excited for me and she (laughs) wants wants the link yeah oh we can definitely share it with her after (laughs) so given everything you've shared with us so far jen why do you think Um, disparities exist regarding the attitudes, practice, and education between female and male pain and pleasure. Could you possibly share with us some of the thoughts that individuals on your panel conveyed as well? So with the video that we watched, um, the concept of a sociosexual script was introduced, and the panelists spent a lot of time talking about that A sociosexual script is a prescribed set of behaviors or assumptions about what is normal or acceptable or satisfying for sex. Here's an example of something that could involve a script. Uh, What is a good sexual experience and when is sex over? And there are uh, messages that we get around us that inform these scripts. So for example, in health class, if you didn't have abstinence-only education, you uh, probably learned about condoms and preventing pregnancy, which, of course, is very important to learn about. Um, condoms, when you're talking about them, they assume male ejaculation, male orgasm. Male pleasure, then, is presupposed. This is something that Dr. Majuros talked about on the panel. And so you're talking in health class about that. And then for girls, you're talking about things like preventing pregnancy and what is menstruation. Of course, very important to talk about. But where's then the conversation of women's desire being natural and that it even exists? That part of the conversation is is left out and it's not seem uh, it doesn't seem necessary in a risk focused curriculum instead of a pleasure focused curriculum. So then where is the idea that uh, women will ask for what they want in bed and communicate that? with a partner where um, I would even argue that their pain is presupposed. There is um, the idea that a lot of girls have that the first time you're going to have sex, it's normal and even expected that it's going to hurt. Mm -hmm. And there's no conversation that not only maybe communicate uh, with the partner about that, but that there are pathologies of the clitoris, for example, that the clitoris, we talked about this in the panel, can have something called smegma, which could be a buildup of oils and that can cause pain for a patient. And so this goes with the idea that there can be a different narrative. It doesn't have to be this way. And then if there are scripts, it doesn't leave as much room for communication where different people might like different things and they may not actually want to follow a script that's not authentic for them. Right, right. And, you know, being medical students, I think we've all heard this idea before that um, immediately comes to mind right now that every patient has a story mm-hmm. and there's no set way of having any sort of illness or pathology, which includes sexual health related ones. And so it's unfair to think that certain situations need to be presupposed and 
prescribed, but rather every individual has their own story and their own emotions and all the many different factors that go into the relationship and the sexual experience. So it's important that a patient's feelings are considered um, immensely. So yeah, I really like that you're able to then connect with a patient and on a different level and see them more in their full humanity. Right. As a person, we talk about this a lot at Loyola, um, about how it's important to treat the entirety of the person, Mm -hmm. considering their values, their goals, their emotions, and, you know, not just their medical issues. Right. And so you mentioned before about how in most cases, sexual education is, is based on this preventive care. Risk. Right. Risk. Right risk-based um framework Mm -hmm. rather than a pleasure-based framework so i'm wondering when do you think would be an ideal time to have that more pleasure-based or say hybrid-based type of education when would it look like a good time do you think we actually addressed this in the panel, and um, Dr. Mojuros was saying how she really likes how the Netherlands does it, where around ages three, four, and five, kids will learn about pleasure and also at the same time as consent. So it could be something like a hug. Do you like a hug? Can I give you a hug? How does a hug feel? Hmm. And um, building then the conversation in an age-appropriate way early on. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I would never have thought so young as, say, three or four, but... In the context of giving a hug, that makes so much sense and would, I think, provide like a framework for them moving forward um, about the importance of asking for permission mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. That's really great. And then I also wanted to talk about language. Um, is now sure. a good time to bring that up? Yeah. So with how um, language influences thought, and this goes back to uh, Brendan's initial question, one thing I learned from the Explained episode is that 82% of women, their orgasm will have to come directly from external clitoral stimulation, where 18% of women will orgasm from intercourse without that direct clitoral stimulation. But we define sex really as intercourse, and it's men's most reliable route to pleasure but what if instead of foreplay being the before concept there was more emphasis on that that is really women's most reliable route to pleasure and just the fact that we call it foreplay i think is um is very revealing also with anatomy sometimes when people learn when people are kids they may not learn all the proper words for genitalia and even people colloquially will use the word um vagina but there are other words too like clitoris and labia and vestibule i didn't know the vestibule until uh last spring when i shadowed dr rubin and it's right around the vagina and the urethra and that there's a disease associated with that vestibulodynia um which is a type of vulvodynia and most people you think don't know of its existence like you didn't know what it was until earlier this year exactly when i had already done the panel at that point <laughs> right yeah and I, I then looked up diagrams for it and it wasn't labeled on a lot of diagrams but there are real medical implications for it right yeah um and then also if we think of anatomy if there's no better way to make something un- unspeakable than to not name it and we're not using <laughs> yeah, these to words not acknowledge it in a diagram has enormous consequences for a lack of un- you know leading to this lack of understanding lack of communication yeah. And then also just realistically with anatomy, the vagina couldn't be the most innervated 
part of the female genitalia because then childbirth would be nearly impossible. Mm. There would be all the oh. sensation there. So the same motion for men and women, it, it, it just wouldn't be possible that, that intercourse is the most direct route to pleasure for, for everyone. Right. Oh, that's so interesting to think about it in an anatomical fashion. Like why did evolution <laughs> right. design us this way? And how it was through reason that that these, you know, structures exist the way they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet we don't appreciate them as such, as you very well know. Mm-hmm. So we know that after you graduated, you created a workshop on sexual boundaries to share with your college sorority. What are sexual boundaries and how does boundary setting relate to this conversation? I'm so glad you asked. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. So to convey the relationship between scripts and boundaries, first I'll give you the definition of what a boundary is in general. Um, And I adopted this definition from the life coach Ianla Van Zant, who um, works very closely with Oprah Winfrey. So... A boundary is a request or expectation that you establish to define the people, experiences, and behaviors that are or are not in alignment with what you need or want. Boundaries reflect what we will allow, accommodate, tolerate, and expect. So with the workshop, we talked about boundaries in general. That's how we started out, laid the foundation, and then we talked about other types of boundaries, emphasizing sexual boundaries, but there are so many types of boundaries, like financial boundaries. There are even boundaries we have with ourselves in uh, do we speak to ourselves kindly. And so with going back to our big topic, women asking for and communicating about what they want in the bedroom has really not been part of the script. And when we can communicate, we're not following scripts that may be inauthentic to us. And people can make more conscious choices um, and be intentional in how they really want to convey and that they're conveying their interests and expectations. And also then someone is, if there's this whole concept of boundaries, people are also more willing to hear their partner's boundaries. Just acknowledging that boundaries exist and are really important to discuss and are really a healthy part of relationships. And then with the workshop, I went uh, to the sorority house. There are about 20 sisters there and we even practiced a language of how to communicate our boundaries. So uh, I have a formula we went over. I can share with you all for an example. And this doesn't have to just be sexual boundaries. This could be in a lot of scenarios. Great. So it starts with when you, and then fill in the blank of the behavior that um, is not okay. I feel, state your emotions clearly, simply, and directly. I want. So you're stating what you need or what that expectation is. And you can even add on a fourth part, um, and it can be that if you continue, I will blank. So you state what's going to happen if someone doesn't respect your boundaries, and it could even be like, I will remove myself from the situation, um, because then you have a way to make sure that people are really following up with this. Interestingly enough, one question I got from a lot of sisters was, well, doesn't communicating kill the mood? Hmm. And I was so appreciative that they shared this question with me because Hmm. I think it's on a lot of people's minds, maybe even the people listening. I think it just shows that our culture is not at a place yet where communication is seen as sexy or even an integral part of uh, intimacy and um, or sexual experience. And it's, it's just not it's not just it's not a part of it. Yeah. Right. How was the reception overall to that workshop, though? 
it was really positive. Yes, yeah. sisters had the same reaction as me when I first heard about this concept of boundaries. Why haven't I learned about this yeah. earlier? And people are really eager to discuss this with me. Emily and I were talking about this early today. If I talk about things like the clitoris and the orgasm gap, people are often really receptive and they want to talk about it with me and they'll even open up to me about it because they're like looking for someone they can talk about this yeah. with. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like you're just waiting for someone to, to say something okay. about it and then people open up. Mm-hmm. So great. Yeah. So it came from the same um, circumstance. Why haven't I learned this? So I, I went to a right. self-defense class before oh. college, um, learned about assessing different situations and how to communicate. We mm. we learned about boundaries. And, and I think it really needs to be part of an understanding of um, of our health. It's so important to healthy relationships and Definitely. our relationship with ourselves. And it just it needs to be part of the conversation. Yeah, that's really great that you organized the workshop with your with your college sorority sisters. Yeah. I'm sure that's really, yeah, appreciate it because I mean, I know like from my experience, I never had such an event in college and Uh I think it would have benefited us immensely as well. Mm -hmm. Just to have it spilled out. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like I should know that. I do know it, but I don't have the words for it. Right. Right. Or to have this space where it's made clear that it's okay. It's okay to say the least, let alone important to have these conversations. Yeah, definitely. So it's clear you're passionate about this topic. You've set up a workshop for it for your sorority sisters. You've set up this panel. Um, You just started medical school a few months ago. And I'm wondering, have you shared this with any of your classmates in any way? And follow up to that, what was their reception? And since this is a medical myths podcast episode, what are some of the myths they may be bought into or things they were surprised by or... uh, Maybe you got some pushback on something. I don't know. Yeah, this is a very timely question because I actually had classmates over on Friday to discuss this topic. Two days ago? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, wow. and I haven't been doing this throughout <laughs> the semester. It's just like the it's same upcoming, weekend. Coming coming up are, now. Yeah. It's, it's great. Um, it's been on the, on the top of my mind. Love um, it. So I, I did, though, start a group me at the beginning of the school year, M1's Interest in Women's Health. And for any of our learners who haven't heard the phrase M1, it just means a first-year med student. Thanks for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's probably, yeah. Good to clarify. And um, we have about 20 people currently in the group me, but like two people have been added to it since our discussion. And we oh, had, wow. yeah, I hosted it. We had, um, it was like about nine of us there. And the central question was, how does a better understanding of women's pain and pleasure by healthcare professionals allow us to promote women's health and well-being? So it was really, how is this going to make us better doctors? Mm. And we actually watched a part of the Explained episode and um, part of the panel. We probably watched about 25 minutes um, of footage in total. Yeah. I really tied it back to our curriculum because we're learning about um, the heart right now. And I actually played Mm. also the excerpt from an audio book, Love Sex Again by Dr. Lauren Stryker at Northwestern about heart failure and orgasm. And I had my classmates say, what do you think is the relationship? And it definitely surprised them what it was. So I can summarize what it said. Yeah. What uh, what the audio book said. Um, and, And it was cool for them to see how sexual medicine relates to other fields. And we definitely talked about that. Yeah. So in the book, uh, it talks about how there should be a discussion between women and their doctors. For example, if someone has a myocardial infarction and they're seeing their cardiologist, how will their sexual response be impacted? And what worries may they have about 
physically exerting themselves. So heart disease is actually the number one killer of women in the United States and also a big killer of sexual health. Um, Sorry, it's the number one killer of women in the U.S.? Yes. Oh, wow. And um, if you have, let's say, coronary artery disease where you have plaque buildup in your vessels and there's reduced blood flow to the heart, it's likely there are also changes in your blood vessels that supply uh, your genitals. So Mm. this can then reduce your ability to have a, a normal sexual response. But let's say someone is worried that their heart can't take the exertion that the oxygen demands that their heart needs. It's not it's not going to be able to reach that. Well, then people will be avoiding sex, for example. And then if they're worried, that's definitely not an aphrodisiac and they're worried about their safety or their partner's safety. And so we talked about even if we don't, even if uh, people in the group are not going into gynecology and sexual medicine, if you're a cardiologist, mm. this will be important to discuss. And uh, my classmates definitely. were really grateful, even though it was definitely a group that already knew a lot about women's health because we yeah. chose to be in this group, me. Um, people still were really happy to have an outlet to discuss this. And um, there were two guys there and one of them wasn't even in the group me. He was just friends with a lot of us. So he <laughs> yeah. came. That's great. And he was just so grateful that he could discuss this without stigma. And if doctors feel comfortable to discuss this without the taboo, I've just demonstrated that, that there are ways that it can benefit patients. Right. Yeah. It, that's huge. The clinical ties between these sexual health dysfunctions and say cardiology Mm -hmm. as you said you know heart disease is such a huge killer among all patients in the u.s Mm -hmm. like to think that this area causing so many deaths is intimately tied with our sexual health as well Mm -hmm. i think warrants a greater appreciation for the relationship yeah a conversation that patients even know that they can be discussing this with their cardiologists definitely so your peers enjoyed their time at this event Yes, it was a great time. And uh, someone brought hot chocolate. Someone nice. brought um, Trulies. So we had uh, a very relaxing time. And um, it was just, it was really nice to be together and discuss this. And people want to have someone else um, host the next discussion and, and keep taking turns. Oh, that's great. Hosting oh, cool. just like for our own um, intellectual pursuits. And yeah, that can amazing. benefit us as future physicians. Yeah, that's great. Learning from each other. Right. It reminds me of say a book group instead of meeting to talk about books you're meaning to talk about these important issues in medicine which could stem from various resources such as documentaries and other things we've learned about definitely yeah going off that what about this topic do you hope that your peers in medical school learn on our way to become physicians who can best treat our patients I really want um, my peers who are in med school to acknowledge that we definitely all have implicit biases about women's pleasure and pain and um, to not let that get in the way of of the care that we give. And it's really great. Rush is already including in the curriculum um, discussions around implicit bias. So we had a class Mm. last week on Monday about it. But a way that we all normalize women's pain is just think of um, period pain or pain that someone has during their menses. we a lot of people are taught that's just normal that's part of being a woman and um, maybe actually it can have an underlying pathology though like endometriosis and just 
like you were saying earlier, really seeing the patient and their own circumstances and story to bring about the best um, outcomes for them. A patient I interviewed on my blog, um, actually Dr. Rubin's patient, that's how I got connected with her, had uh, vestibulodynia, and she had it throughout her life, and she couldn't uh, use a tampon, she couldn't have intercourse with her partner, and she was told by multiple physicians that your pain is all in your head. And there's this idea of just normalizing women's pain. And, and I, I don't think any of my classmates or any physicians, though, want to do that to their patient, make them feel not heard and alone. Right. But um, there, and there's also a history to this. We were talking about history earlier. Female sexual pain was often treated as psychological. It was reclassified as a pain disorder as recent as 2013. So there are really systemic forces that are impacting these biases. And I really want my class to be clitorate. Love that word, <laughs> literate plus uh, clitoris, and um, <laughs> I have that, um, was, that was nice and subtle. <laughs> and just that people know the anatomy and know why it's important and how sexual health, sexuality, having a positive body image are really tied with health and well-being, and, and removing the taboo and these biases is, is really going to benefit um, our patients. Yeah, definitely, and. I am immediately reminded about how the class that Brennan and I are taking now called Patient-Centered Medicine. We are learning about how to interview patients, including how to take a sexual and psychosocial history. And we've been taught the importance of making an effective transition into these topics for patients since they're so important and not just throwing these questions out there because they are often more sensitive and it's important that we make patients feel comfortable having these conversations. The patient case you described, I can only imagine how difficult it was for that patient to talk about it at first, but once she was given the respect and the validation for what she was going through, both medically and emotionally, I'm sure that made it so much better and easier for her to talk about as Mm -hmm. a patient with this difficult diagnosis and also difficult situation that had clearly impacted so many domains of her life Mm -hmm. yeah probably made all the difference she um then started her own blog to then spread awareness about bulbadinia that's great i'm sure multiple patients and hopefully providers as well yeah she compiled scientific articles also for people to get and she um is getting her phd right now so she's a science background and so she uh, really screened through the articles that then uh, other patients can learn from that's really impressive great that you found her as Mm -hmm. well so how do you we touched on this a little bit earlier but how do you plan to integrate um, some of the topics we've discussed and your passion for women's health into you your future career um I know you touched on that in your intro. I have some more talking I about say. yourself, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> go for it. Um, definitely with advocacy, because with getting the word out, um, it can definitely influence how people think about certain topics and issues within medicine, and that could influence policy or what gets funding. So at the panel, for example, Dr. Rubin spoke about that she has about 26 drugs she can give to her male patients for promoting their sexual pleasure. And she has one on label, FDA approved for women. It's called Addy for low libido. And just the fact oh, wow. that, yeah. Only one. Yeah. Just then if you can have the conversation about this and it's in people's consciousness, then it's the first step in there being changes on a more systemic 
or policy level and yeah. what is considered worthy of um, having research. Mm. Right. Huh. Yeah, it's definitely a whole other subject about the factors that affect the FDA's approval of drugs and institutions such as the NIH giving grants for such studies. Mm -hmm. But that's really interesting, the difference in the number of drugs you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I think something a lot of people don't think about. Yeah, and it's interesting that with um, Viagra, I think it's really allowed men to talk so much more openly about sexual dysfunction because we all will see it on commercials. Right. right. But there hasn't been that same thing for women. Yeah. Right, by any means. Not yet. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So we've been talking pretty specifically about um, sexual health and women's sexual health. Just wondering if stepping back and taking a look at a the big picture kind of or a broader picture – um, can you kind of tell us how a greater understanding of women's pleasure and pain by either healthcare providers, by the general public, by students like yourself and myself, um, how that might promote overall women's health and well-being? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it definitely goes back to acknowledging the implicit biases we have regarding sex and gender, but also to expand that, to understand how, for example, women of color are impacted uniquely by uh, these issues. So I know Serena Williams has been doing advocacy um, on her experiences as a woman of color in healthcare with her pregnancy. And then even for transgender or gender non-conforming patients, how they are uniquely impacted. Also how, and we touched on this though, sexual medicine is relevant to a lot of different fields. I even can bring up in oncology. Mm. So if a patient yeah. is having uh, treatment for their cancer, sexual dysfunction uh, often comes with that. And maybe a patient would want to talk with their physician about how can I bring this back into my life. And it's really important for quality of life that the body is not just there for pain. I can yeah. have positive experiences for my body. It doesn't just have to be suffering. And I can be intimate with my partner again. And these days that are important to me are not only behind me. Right. Huh. So sticking with the theme of medical myths, um, what would be kind of the main or a few key takeaways that you would want people to get from this conversation? Yeah, um, I um, would definitely want people to know that there are people who really care about this and are advocating and doing uh, research. So, for example, there's the uh, International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. So if people wanted to learn more, there are definitely ways that they can do that. Mm. Um, it's the society is called Ishwish. Um, they have a conference every year. Um, they offer courses. Um, they have a research grant, and they're engaged in advocacy. The doctors in the panel are a part of it. And then also just to acknowledge what you don't know you don't know. I had no idea right. before the right. video, uh, the Netflix episode, that there was so much I didn't know. And so I, I know that there's so much more that I'm going to learn that I can't even imagine <laughs> how it'll be yet. And just to uh, be humble and open-minded about that. And that can come into play when you're having a conversation with someone, a, a patient's experience when you're, right. when you're a doctor. Just be aware of that. Definitely. Yeah. Great. Does that fully answer your question? I think so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. And then if people also want to learn more, uh, they can check out my blog where the panel is actually in video and audio form. Great. The URL is uh, genromanellobioethics.com and definitely to check out the um, 
the Netflix episode titled The Female Orgasm, in case you didn't catch it before, on um, Explained. The, the show's Explained. Sounds great. And we will be Excellent. posting those resources on the Medicist podcast website. So oh, you can perfect. always look for yes. those. Thank you so much again for being here. Yeah, and we hope this information helps everyone who's listening yes. um, in some way. Um, that's why we're starting this medical myths series. Yes. Again, is to combat misinformation, misunderstandings, and stigmas in the medical world. And we think this podcast episode relates to that and hope everyone gets something out of that. All right, Jen, it's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Pun intended, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. As always, thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, no patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.